0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
1: I'm producer Joe Russo, and from the socially distanced headquarters of Nice Sky Productions, this is Postmortem. You might be asking yourself wait, isn't this where Mick usually speaks? And you'd be right. But this week, we're doing something a little different. You see, we have a special treat for you. The self-proclaimed zealot of horror himself, Mick Garris, is on the post-mortem slab. And, after so many opening monologues, where he has lavish praise onto others, it's time to return the favor. You'd be hard-pressed to find an individual that's been a more important champion of horror than Mick Garris. He loves the genre, he loves its creators, he loves its fans, and we love him for it. From tapping into the true sensitivities of Stephen King's works and adaptations like Bag of Bones and Riding the Bullet, to their epic Raiding Smash collaborations on The Stand and The Shining, to cult classics like Sleepwalkers, Critters 2, and Psycho 4, and of course, the annual Halloween tradition, Hocus Pocus, Mick Garris has been entertaining fans for decades. His masters of horror dinners have helped connect some of the most legendary filmmakers in the genre, helping to create a thriving and supportive community amongst them. And while many would kill to be a fly on the wall at these exclusive events, we all benefited from these wonderful dinners when they gave us one of Mick's crowning horror achievements, two seasons of the anthology series Masters of Horror on Showtime. There, Mick got to be the ultimate fan and champion of so many of his favorite horror filmmakers, allowing them the unique opportunity of creative control and, in turn, they delivered some of their best work. And today, Mick shows no signs of slowing down, Our collaboration, Nightmare Cinema, a spiritual successor to Masters of Horror, garnered Mick's some of the best reviews of his career, playing around the world at dozens of film festivals before debuting on Shudder as their number two release of 2019. This podcast, Postmortem, now in its fourth season, continues to delight horror fans around the world. And, just this week, Mick's latest work, These Evil Things We Do, a collection of his novels and short stories, is being published and released by Fangoria. To commemorate the release, we're welcoming a special guest host, Fangoria's editor-in-chief, Phil Nobile Jr., to interview Master of Horror Mick Garris, and he will do so right after this. This week, it's your last chance to subscribe to Fangoria in time to receive the Summer Issue. In case you didn't see online, the cover featuring friend of postmortem Pat Oswalt and his dream horror showdown has taken the internet by storm. For a very limited time, use the promo code who would win to get 25% off your first year of Fango at fangoria.com. That's promo code who would win.
2: Phil, thanks so much for for uh, showing up on the uh, postmortem slab with me. Uh, I really appreciate uh, getting the chance to spend some time with you.
0: Well, we've been trying to do this for about a year, I think, and uh... <laughs> Trying to find the right reason, and it was always going to be in person. And so I'm. It's a little bittersweet that we're doing it this way, but I'm still grateful for the opportunity to sit and chat with you for a little bit. Um, I was I was reading some stuff about you today, and and you said it was interesting. You see, your first movie memory uh, in movies is at a drive-in. So was mine, and yours uh, was. Uh, yours was Psycho, whereas yeah. mine was The Exorcist.
2: Uh, ah. I,
0: I did not direct Exorcist 4, but you got the <laughs> you got to Helm Psycho 4, which is a film that I, I'm very fond of and I was very pleased to see get the the deluxe treatment recently uh, after it languishing in my VHS shelf for far too long. Oh,
2: uh, thank you.
0: Um, but we're talking about all of this stuff. And we're talking about and you said you didn't want to like out and out promote your book, but I want to talk to you about your process because I don't know, to me it seems that film directing and writing fiction are roughly, uh, have as much to do with each other as, uh, like overseeing a construction site and fly fishing. It's, <laughs> these are two different sets of muscles and, and I think we can maybe count on one hand, the people that have successfully made a go of both. Like Stephen King famously tried to direct one movie and was like, that's that's enough for me. <laughs> uh, and you know, Clive Barker made a run of it and got fed up with the sort of the, the machine of the industry. You know, based on the chats that I've had with him, but you're you're writing this line, and I'm curious um, how how that approach differs, how how the, your voice, ch- uh, your creative voice changes between the two mediums, and and what what you find in one that you can't find in the other.
2: Well, it's interesting because I started writing short fiction at the age of twelve, which is about the same age I got my first eight millimeter movie camera, <clears throat> but. I I used to draw before I started writing, and I kind of gave up drawing once I started writing. But the thing about writing fiction is the intimacy of it. Richard Matheson once told me something that was profound and simple at the same time. He told me um, writing fiction is internal and writing film is external. And it really had an effect on me because I realized how important the inside, the workings of one's mind can be projected, can be uh, communicated in words that it can't be in pictures. Um, When you're making movies, when you're writing movies, you're writing a blueprint for a group of a hundred people to work off of. And when you're directing movies, you're basically putting out fires, you're inspiring people, you're overlapping jobs with all these other, other different people in a way, an artistic traffic cop, in another way, a motivational speaker, in another way, a psychologist in dealing with all of these creative people and and the way they work. When you're writing for the page, there's nothing between me and the reader. Um, So there's a direct line into my psyche or the character's psyche. And there's the opportunity to be unbelievably intimate in a way that you can't really achieve in movie making. Sure.
0: Now, are you able to step back from your output, let's say, and and sort of what are you able to observe what surprises you about your output in terms of the difference between your filmic output and your and your prose? Like the voice has got is the voice very different
2: and has it surprised you how it's different? Well, over the years I've gotten a little braver. You know, I think a really good writer is very brave because you're bearing your soul in a way that should be embarrassing and is embarrassing in a lot of senses. Um, and yeah, I step away and I, I look at something like the short story, a life in the cinema and this, uh, uh, baby monster creature and the, the unbelievably awful things that take place in there that are so far removed from batteries not included or hocus pocus, for example. And there's just a line I'm much more willing to cross. And when I'm doing it, you know, my fingers are writing and I'm often laughing with glee at what happens or sometimes feeling real pain and ache and trying to convey that in a way that I could not do in a commercial Hollywood production. Um, so yeah, there've been times when I finished something and go, wow, how did that get there? And did that come from me? Cause I'm, I'm kind of a, a very hail fellow. Well, met I'm, I'm, uh, a very happy sort of person and, and comfortable with people. And, and, uh, you know, I have a, a very easy demeanor that would not, uh, be expected if somebody read, for example, this book that is coming out this week.
0: Right. Uh, you know, your demeanor is interesting because there's, there's the romantic notion of the two-fisted writer who's kind of, you know, like hard scrabble and maybe, you know, other human contact and that's, well, yeah, you know, um, but you are such a, uh, how do I say this without sounding like I'm being trite? But you're, you're such a warm presence. You're such an affable human being. And, and you're so, from what I can tell, so, so good natured. And that, that's gotta come in handy when it comes time to work with an editor on, on your fiction or, or do you have an editor? Is, is there a collaborative process that I'm maybe, that's you know, not so obvious with writing prose?
2: Well, I've never really had any creative editing going on on my fiction because mostly it's been small press. Um, working with Preston Fassel on on this book for Fangoria was the first time I really had somebody editing the work. The short you- fiction for some other like anthologies that I've written, I would have some editorial guidance and the like. but. Um, I have not really had the experience of an editor uh, in the sense that if I were working at Random House or something. So mm-hmm. it's been pretty unfettered. And, um, you know, I, I just try to be the most positive person that I can on the planet and try and, and maybe atone for the sins of my fiction by my reality. You know? I see.
0: <laughs> when you When you look at the... Are you writing things that couldn't you couldn't film? Or are you writing things maybe with an eye toward this would be an interesting kernel for a film project or, or um, is there is there a bit of an overlap there and and where does that occur for you?
2: Well, primarily, I started writing fiction again because filmmaking can be so frustrating and so many uh, you have to kind of uh, uh, you know, answer to a lot of forces, uh, commercial and otherwise. A lot of people want to lift their leg and leave a yellow stain on the project and uh, so that they can sign their name to it. Um, and with fiction, I started doing it just because there was no input from anybody else. And, yeah, there were things I could write about that I could not write in a screenplay or direct in a film or television show. And the internal quality of it is what led me to doing fiction. It's a much more intimate form. What I write in fiction is not necessarily huge in scope, in physical scope. Um, the stories are smaller and, and more human and intimate and deal more with relationships. And <clears throat> I've found that a lot of the characters I write about, I've realized this much later into the process, are very solitary. And in a way, I'm pretty solitary in in a lot of ways, although there's nothing solitary about directing movies and television. You are the opposite of that is the most demanding social situation that you can possibly be put in. You have to be able to communicate with people well and inspire them and lead them in a creative direction so that everyone is on the same creative page. Whereas you can hurt when you're writing in a way that... I hope is universal and and con- connect with the pain and the experiences that other people have. Not just pain. Sometimes it's romance. Sometimes it's laughter and joy. But um, I do like, for such a sunny fellow, I do like the dark a lot. Sure.
0: I'm curious about in terms of you know you're a guy that's been presenting things for decades, whether that's you're presenting documentary work or you were in publicity for a long time. Talk to me about your mind as a presenter in, in crafting this book, because it's a lot of short stories, but it's also four novellas, right?
2: Yeah, it's four novellas and a novel. And- and was
0: it meant to be read in order. Did you have a lot of thoughts about how you were going to sort of lay that out for the reader?
2: I just really wanted to change each one not run into something that was similar. You know, they they're quite dissimilar from un, one another. Uh there's a real sense of humor in some of them and there's a story show, snow shadows that is uh decidedly not it's much more literary in its content. There's very little there's a little bit of humor in it but mostly it's pretty serious. Um and yet there's a smart aleck quality to things like um, uh, the Tyler's Third Act, for example, which is going to be the basis for my next Nightmare Cinema story that I do, um, script that's already written, and we're hopefully in the process of moving that along after the coronavirus. Um, but I do notice that there's a lot of first person in my fiction writing, and and they mostly involve Hollywood to a certain extent Snow shadows does not um, and there's one set in Beverly Hills but it's about plastic surgery not movie making but uh, with Tyler's third act and with Salome the novel and uh, those are both very Hollywood oriented and the story free is set in LA but again it's not a Hollywood story but I do find that I like to look for the ugliest Creatures that squirm under the rocks of Hollywood when I'm writing got it
0: I'm curious to know um, we were proud to feature an excerpt in the in in fangoria of, of, of from this book and is that like a Sophie's choice kind of thing for you if someone says you know' Yeah, I keep thinking of Phantom of the Paradise, where he's like got this giant, you know, opera, and the guy's like, "Nah, just give me the uh, up numbers." Like, <laughs> when, someone, when someone wants to reduce something you've put so much into, into like, well, give us the excerpt. Is that a painful thing for you, or, or, or am I uh, am I off the mark there?
2: Well, it is a painful thing, and and so I actually told the the book's editor, Preston, who we mentioned before. That I would just as soon he choose it than me. So it's not it's not a, a, a stone on my back, you know. Got it.
0: Uh, you and I have a similar uh, bit of background in that we've both done our share of documentarian work and documentarian work about filmmaking, right? Yeah. And, and so one of the things I always have to navigate when I'm talking to someone who's had uh, decades long career and has built this body of work is the idea of legacy of how they don't get to, we, in general, we don't get to choose our legacies, right? Mm-hmm. It's decided mm-hmm. for us after the fact. It's decided for us by third parties, by the audience to a large degree. Right. Um, have you given thought to that in terms of your legacy and, and and maybe what has, what about your legacy has surprised you in terms of, you know, the stuff that's gone, gone on to develop a life of its own?
2: Well, uh, you know, something like Hocus Pocus has become this phenomenon that for a film that was not particularly successful when it first came out and was a Disney movie and all of that, you know, family friendly, it's like bigger every year. It's, you know, when people find out I wrote Hocus Pocus, my daughter loves that
0: movie. Or, you know, it's. Isn't it fascinating? There was a Hocus Pocus section in the Halloween store the last time I went into one. And to see that stuff sprout up organically has to be gratifying in a way.
2: It's mind-blowing, but I've never gotten a penny from the, that merchandise. Uh, I don't know how Disney gets away with it, but they have lawyers that do that. Uh-huh. Uh, but as far as a legacy goes, I, all I do is try and do the best work that I can. But what I'm really proud of is doing Masters of Horror and getting these great people, as Joe said in his introduction, some of my idols, some of my favorite filmmakers, giving them the opportunity for the first time for many of them in decades where they could tell a story they wanted to tell with nobody's interference. So my legacy as a cheerleader for people like that is something that's important. And doing these postmortem interviews, the TV version, as well as the uh, podcast version, of of having sort of a... um, uh, just a a conversation with people where i take the back seat and i just try and encourage them to discuss their lives and their careers and their motivations and their inspirations and you know by far i do the least talking and i i just want to have them uh, i'm the audience i'm a fan i love this stuff i'm inspired by them and every single show we've done, I learned something that I didn't know before. And I'm inspired in ways that I've never been before. And I know that I hear things from these filmmakers or authors or whomever, makeup artists, that they've never spoken about before because this is a platform that's unlike most. It's it's having a conversation with a filmmaker rather than with a journalist. and And talking about, going back to your words about documentary... I want to tell people that horror noir, which you produced, is one of the most important and fantastic documentaries on the horror genre or any genre that I've seen. And you you have so much to be proud of there, Phil.
0: I'm I'm super proud of my role there. And you know, it's and I and you're not going to believe me, but I think about you when I think about that stuff because you you were a guy who you weren't building your own brand, but you were there. You were this sort of cinematic midwife who was facilitating like the, you know these things to, to come into being and that's how I felt with Horror and Noir and I am I am proud of my, my part in that um, but you're your' the thing you just described has its roots going back to what, 82 or 83 when you did that sort of roundtable discussion that the internet needs to discover every five years like it's <laughs> new, you about the legends
2: yeah well, it even started before that. I was on uh, I had a show on the Z Channel, which was a los angeles based only based um, uh, pay TV channel, the first one in Los Angeles, even before they started running HBO and Showtime. And I interviewed William Friedkin and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and all these people then. And then in eighty one, I was doing publicity for um Universal. And, um, they were releasing films by David Cronenberg, John Carpenter, and John Landis, American Werewolf in London, The Thing, and Videodrome. And as a publicist for the, for the studio, I had an inspiration of getting these three guys who were known for the genre, even though it was early in their genre careers, um, and having this conversation about what it takes to make horror movies and that fear on film show, which you're talking about, yeah, it keeps popping up, and people keep trying to take credit for it on YouTube so that they make the money off of it but <laughs> and all um but it's just there i to know that we've done something that can contribute to the history of horror cinema in particular, but cinema in general is really exciting i never set out to be an ambassador or custodian of the horror genre but i've kind of found myself doing that especially going around the world to film festivals and and uh, and doing interviews for documentaries like yours and you know uh, on the horror genre i don't want to be a talking head but um, you know it's it's just something that means a lot to me
0: well, it's just I, I think it's something that is worth pointing out that you're you're a living historian because you had you had the wherewithal to understand something important was happening in front of you at the time. I think that you know a, a lot of folks dive into something that they were you're know, not around for. You know, I remember growing up reading like Leonard Maltin's Our Gang books and, and 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 stuff on Laurel and Hardy, and they were people that were a generation or two after the fact, but. You're a, truly a pioneer in, in recognizing the history that was happening in front of you and making sure that it was being recorded. And on some level, you're one of the first guys to sort of recognize the interest in that fans have in looking behind the curtain. I mean, maybe you were a famous Monsters kid when you were growing up, right? I think I you was. Know, we all yeah. owe Forry for that. Um, but but Forey, Forey knew he was talking to kids, and, and I think your stuff, it was – uh, not talking down and it was not, it was not, uh, uh I was
2: gobble, gobble, off. gobble, gobble, one of us, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but you were recognizing it as legitimate art and you were recognizing it as, as like craft worth celebrating and exploring. And, and you were one of the first guys to do it. I think, I think we all owe you a huge debt.
2: Well, thank you. But I, you know, I never saw it as me maintaining the importance of the horror genre, but it was interesting to me and i thought if it was interesting to me it would be interesting to other people and yeah horror is often looked down even today it's still seen as a gutter genre and the whole point of of what i do is recognizing that it has value and there's no such thing as elevated horror uh, that's just really good examples of horror. There's intelligent horror. There's, you know, slapdash drive-in horror that's really fun and valid in its own right. But there is great art to be found in this genre, and I would put it up against any drama or historical epic or anything in, in its value, in its storytelling value, and the way it connects in such an intimate way with the audience. Absolutely. Um, what's,
0: what sort of current trends are you excited about in horror? What are you, what are you seeing this year lately that you think is, uh, gonna, gonna move the needle? Let's say,
2: I, I just love somebody taking me in other directions the the proliferation of streaming platforms has been, I think, really good for the genre and, the international quality of it. You know, Netflix does international productions all around the world within the genre. And it's not just Netflix, but, you know, it's, and it's in television as well. You're seeing important productions that uh, have the qualities of Penny Dreadful or uh, The Outsider or, you know, they can take the time for stories to unfold the way miniseries used to do when I was doing The Stand and The Shining and things like that. Um, But what's exciting about me is the diversity of voices. Not that it's going in one particular subgenre's direction or another, but we're getting voices from various ethnicities and gender and all of that, getting people like Karin Kusama and, and, uh, Uh, Coralie Fargia and Issa Lopez. And, and, you know, there's really wonderful things going on all around the world. And the international quality of horror is something that excites me the most. I love homegrown horror as much as anybody, and we do more of it than anyone, just by the vast nature of our business and this size of the country. But I, I, I love the diversity. I love all these different voices and the fact that they're personal. You know, something like Tigers Are Not Afraid expresses something profoundly human and personal to a filmmaker whose voice you haven't heard before. And that stuff excites the hell out of me. Yeah,
0: that's what, that's what I always sort of, when anyone asks me about that stuff that's going on or or, or why I'm, I'm doing some of the doc work that I'm doing, it's just that we're getting to this age where like, it's just exciting to see new things happening it's exciting to to be in front of it and see it happening in front of you yeah and, about that?
2: and the past is there too in ways that we were never able to access it before anything almost any film that has come out that connected in any way with an audience we can now reach out and access it at the click of a button you know you can go to uh, to uh, realgood.com dot and and find where any movie is streaming that you want to see.
0: Yeah, did could you imagine as a kid that like if you wanted to watch the nineteen ten Frankenstein that it would be a ten clicks away? I would watch it in ten seconds from now if I wanted to. Yeah,
2: but, it's know. amazing. I used to have to circle things in TV guide that would be on at uh, three in the morning and try and set an yeah. alarm and try not to fall asleep through it. You know, it was it was a different day when I was a kid.
0: Same. I don't know why curse of the werewolf was always on at three in the morning and never on in the daytime, but, damn! but now it's on my shelf. It's amazing. Um, if, if someone's picking up your book, do you recommend starting at the front or is it one of those anthologies that you can start anywhere, jump in anywhere?
2: They are entirely unrelated to one another. So you can jump in there at any point. I mean, I always like to start at the beginning of a book and make my way through. Um, it has four novellas up front. The longest novella is is brand new, and it's called Free, and uh, it's longer than the other three. Uh, and then it ends with my second novel, Salome, which is kind of a uh, Hollywood desert noir murder mystery more than it's a horror story. But it has horrific elements to it. But that is the longest piece, so we end with a full-length novel.
0: Gotcha. And I saw that uh, Mr. Stephen King compared you to Elroy, and, and some other uh you know very flattering authors, but who are your influences?
2: Well, obviously, King has been a tremendous influence to me uh Ray Bradbury was my first influence. I read everything he'd written by the time I was twelve. um I just devoured it all there was He was almost a storytelling evangelist in a way and and I saw him speak several times when I was in high school interviewed him when when I was in high school. And uh, you know, it was thrilling to to that was the first person I interviewed who was an idol of mine, and that started my interest in learning directly from people. But Richard Matheson was a huge influence. The Noir guys, you know, Raymond Chandler, um, James M. Kane, James Elroy, uh, Tom you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I even, I even adapted one of Thompson's books called Recoil, but it never became a movie. Um, and I was really excited about that. It was interesting to me when we interviewed Guillermo recently on the podcast, he said he knew he was either going to be a horror director or a noir film noir director. And it's, I, I love that because I feel the same way. And a lot of my work tends to combine elements of both.
0: What's your favorite film noir?
2: Oh boy. Postman always rings twice. It's pretty amazing. Um, Mildred Pierce is fantastic in a way you wouldn't expect. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so much really good stuff. Um, and modern noir like Red Rock West, I think is unbelievable. Uh, there there's really good stuff out there. Uh, and Chinatown, of course, is we're talking cinema noir uh, rather than the books, but Chinatown is, maybe the ne plus ultra of, of film noir.
0: Right on. So I was uh, Scorsese did a long documentary once and he dropped the Lever to heaven as the only technicolor film noir. And he was right. And, uh, <laughs> and that movie's finally getting some love now. And it's, uh, it's always one I try to turn new film fans onto, uh, we were talking about legacy a minute ago. And another part of your legacy is the sort of rediscovery of your prog rock band. <laughs> Horse feathers, right? Talk to yeah. me about that. I got to listen to some of that on Spotify and uh, I was enjoying it. It was had a, had a very uh it had a very sort of yes kind of energy to it a little bit and uh and some early maybe early Genesis I was feeling a little bit.
2: Yeah, we um we were kind of iconoclastic in that we, we started out as a country rock band in 1970, and that went away pretty quickly because we were all very cynical and had a real sense of humor, and the same five guys were in this band for seven or eight years, and it was all original. We only did original stuff from the beginning, but the longer we were together, the more we started seeing the opportunity to to grow and do something unlike what everybody else out there was doing. Everybody played two or three instruments and we got into complicated. Our keyboard player and primary composer, Bill Burney, uh, loved avant-garde classical music. And so, as you heard from listening to some of the songs, they go through a lot of movements, and there was a lot of complicated stuff, a lot of complicated arrangements. Um, and I, I love the comparison to Yes and Genesis. They were doing the same kinds of things. A um, little bit of difference was we weren't afraid to be funny and self-deprecating. Um, right.
0: There's humor there that that is, is not shy. Yeah, down.
2: yeah, we we weren't afraid to mock ourselves as well as the music we were doing. Uh, a lot of the prog rock bands of the '70s were pretty precious about it, and you know, very uh, ethereal lyrics and and took themselves very very seriously and worthwhile. I mean, yes, was amazing. Gentle Giant, I think, was the best of all. Um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, Genesis, to a lesser extent, but. But I, we all love to embrace the element of surprise in the way of making a horror movie. You know, you want to twist the audience's expectations and what you deliver being something more than what you expect. And in the case of Horse Feathers, we took great pride in the complexity of it, but at the same time, trying to keep it accessible and entertaining too, because otherwise you're just masturbating. But, sure. but it is where I kind of learned... A lot that, that influenced what I was going to become as a writer and filmmaker in trying to deliver beyond the norm and and do something, keep trying to be surprising and, and entertaining, and uh, you know put some intellect into something that often is lacking in it. You know, we weren't a three chord bash rock band, and I don't make you know slasher movies um, that, that are interchangeable, but try and, and do something, especially in the original stuff, uh, unexpected and take you in places that you might not have thought of.
0: Definitely. So it's for, for people who might not know, talk to me about, uh, what your role was in Horse Feathers. And then, Uh, and then I'm curious about what the, uh, why it's back. Like, how, how does that come about? Are we okay in time?
2: uh, No, we're fine. Um, yeah, I, uh, this was 1970 and, and, we i was the lead singer in the band as well as one of the songwriters all of us wrote the songs uh Andy Robinson our drummer wrote uh li- he and i wrote most of the lyrics um Mark Wittenberg our late guitarist was one of the composers um Bill Manning our bass player and keyboard player and rhythm guitar he also wrote music but our primary composer was our keyboard player and occasional bass player and clarinetist Bill Burney um and uh, we were a pretty showy band. I mean, it's really interesting to have been a rather overt lead singer in a band like this, in a show band, uh, and to settle into a career behind the camera, um, you know, where I'm much more comfortable. I mean, I I had my antics, and I enjoyed doing it when I was in the band, but that was a different time, and in a lot of ways, a different mick. I'm i was not nearly so quiet as i am now <laughs> when i was in the band and uh, like we were talking about i was not afraid to be a clown um but uh, you know i'm i'm very comfortable sitting behind a keyboard and and writing or uh, you know behind a monitor when i'm on a film set where the cameras are on other people but uh, it was i was a performer i wasn't just a singer for better or for worse i might add
0: is is there footage of this band out there
2: no no No, we were pre-video we were in the 70s yeah but uh, there's a lot of photographs around and this oh you asked about what how the album came about it's interesting Mm -hmm. it's our first album but our keyboard player has a library of all the hours and hours of recordings that we'd done a lot of demos, a lot of them, very high quality demos. And he got the idea of, of freshening them up. He started adding instruments, instrumentation and layering new music uh, on the old. And we did some new vocals and things. And we ended up uh, putting together this hour long album and we put it out. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Music. It's, a, it's on all of the streaming sites. And if you want the CD uh, signed by all the surviving members, it's at horsefeathersmusic.com. But it, it's a chapter in a life. In a way, we were talking about legacy of, of those interviews and masters of horror and, and, and keeping something that might otherwise be forgotten and that's it's a slice of our lives it's a chapter of our lives that is now presented in a way that we're really proud of you know it doesn't just sound like a bunch of old demo recordings but it's fresh and it may be dated in its music but because prog rock was never successful not that many people would know that
0: Uh, I want to I want to cast a vote that dated is not a negative word like, okay, let's, let's, let's embrace something that's dated. Cause something of a period, the way that it was, because you're right. It doesn't sound like anything that's happening in music right now, but it, it took me to a place that I, I knew when it was, I had a sense of where it was. And, and I think that there's something really special about a piece of music that is of its time. And I enjoyed listening to it quite a lot.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Almost no American bands did progressive rock. It was primarily British and, to some extent, German and Italian. Mm -hmm. And it felt like we were kind of the only people doing it at the time in, in the United States, particularly in Southern California, where, you know, we were kind of beat up by the emergence of punk and disco. And yeah. that kind of led to the end of Horse Feathers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were beaten up by punks. You could totally sound some of those grooves you can totally see playing in a Giallo film. It's very, yeah, it's got this, just that real funky kind of, uh, uh, you know, you know what I mean that, that almost Italian sounding uh, yeah. manic energy to it. I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. I'm curious to know what, where, where you're first peek behind the camera was for, for me, it was like this one, two punch of like, I got a, I think Thomas Islesworth monsters of the movies book and like Dick Smith's how to make a book when I was a kid. And that's when I first started to sort of comprehend the idea of craft of somebody making the stuff that we love so much. Right. Did you have a moment like that?
2: You know, I, I loved all that stuff. I read all those books, you know, great horror movies of the 1960s and, uh, you know, uh, I went and saw Psycho in the Drive-In in 1960, 61, when I was a child, and really a child, when people thought horror movies were intended for kids. But really the peak behind the curtain never really happened until I was in college and I took a television production course. I didn't even know when I was in high school what a director did. I'd been making little home movies with an eight millimeter movie camera as a 12, 13, 14 year old but I didn't know what editing was. Everything was done in the camera then. There weren't really that many books on the process of how a movie is made. And interviews were normally celebrity interviews. They were not about filmmakers and and how they worked. So that was a curtain I never got to peek behind until I was in college and went to, uh, I took a television production course and saw how those things came together. And I went to the movies constantly and started going to the uh, repertory cinemas of the day when there were so many, not just art houses, but every two days the movie would change and it would be something from 1942 or something new that would never be in a Main Street theater, Um, just... And I had the fortune of growing up in Southern California. So maybe the first peek behind the curtain was when my grandmother took me and my two brothers and sister to Universal Tour when they first opened up and took the tram all the way through. When it wasn't a theme park, but it was indeed just a look. You're on the tram looking at productions and sets and all the real thing before they started building rides and attractions. And it was fantastic. We are on this tram and we're riding through a production that's actually going on at that time. Now, I learned later when I was shooting Psycho 4 on the Orlando Universal lot and all the uh, uh, tourists coming up to the police tape where we're shooting outside the Bates house, a very emotional scene. And there's 100 people standing there eating their popcorn and hot dogs watching us do this and trying... Uh, you know, to have Olivia Hussey and Henry Thomas do something incredibly deep and intense with an audience. Uh, so I learned about that. But that—that that was probably the first time that excited me about the process of making movies. Was as a kid on that backlot tour.
0: And then the the uh, the documentarian part of your career was an outgrowth of your your gig as a publicist, primarily.
2: Yeah. yeah. Basically, I would hire myself. For $6,000 to do behind the scenes uh, documentaries instead of hiring an EPK company to do it for $100,000. And it was a way I learned how you could take pieces of time, as Peter Bogdanovich calls them, and assemble them into a narrative structure. Even though there was no script or anything, we were just shooting random pieces, but you'd find a way to build that structure, as you know as a documentarian, that you, you don't just put these pieces together haphazardly, but you create a structure and find it and let the story find itself in a lot of ways. And so I was putting together pieces of film to tell a very tight story on, on the making of a movie and trying to give it some sense of context so there would be a script afterwards, not before, and you would find that out. So I was able to do that um, first, I did it on The Fog, the, on my first publicity job or movie job ever was uh, on on The Fog for Avco Embassy. And then I did it on, on Escape from New York. And I did it on The Thing, the making of The Thing, the making of Gremlins. Um, you know, there, there were a bunch of things like that. And, and I found out what it was like to actually shoot things and assemble them into something. Even though I was going into a narrative field later, I'd been writing as a child, um, uh, short stories and invariably horror stories with O. Henry type endings. Um, but this was a way of actually taking sound and image and, and you know, putting them into a structure and learning how that develops.
0: That's great. <clears throat> and you're, I keep thinking about how you're ahead of the curve on so many things. You're essentially making bonus features before there's any place to put bonus features. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you did Young Norman Bates before Bates Motel ever got around to it.
2: Way before, yeah. Uh,
0: Has anyone asked you about Bates Motel as a series? Have you ingested any of it? Do you have any thoughts?
2: Um, I watched, I didn't watch all of it, you know. Um, It was so far removed. They intentionally didn't want it to be anything like the Hitchcock movie or the sequels. And, you know, we had Norma Bates before. uh, And the original, uh, you know, the Psycho 4 script was written by Joe Stefano, who wrote the original Psycho script as well for the Hitchcock movie. And there was a lot of respect paid to that. Um, but around season two or three, when it started to be about drug dealing uh, <laughs> in high school, it was like, I don't know what this has to do with with uh, Norman Bates and and the legacy. You're talking about legacy. The legacy of Psycho was kind of sacrosanct to me. Yeah. and. and just, you know, Psycho 2 was great. People did not really appreciate Psycho 3, but it still respected its its origin. Um, and so Bates Motel, I enjoyed it once I let myself realize, oh, okay, it's ignoring everything that's been set up to here. And I enjoyed it. But then when it turned that corner, like I said, into drug dealing in high school, that just kind of lost me.
0: Yeah. All dramatic television has become serial-based primarily yeah. now when something's not it's a shock at this point but yeah, yeah it's, it's true it's weird yeah. to see you know the soap opera become the predominant art form of the 21st century
2: well thanks streaming for that
0: <laughs> <laughs> there it is um, gosh you you did something in psycho 4 I'm gonna go off on a slight little tangent here which well maybe you didn't do it maybe it was in the script but you were there um, where you kind of rewrote history a little bit in that we all thought that mrs. Bates was this shrewish old woman. And with yeah. one line, he says, I, I made her old in my mind because, you know, the voice he did was an, an old lady, but no, she was this beautiful woman that was, you know, desirable. And that's part of Norman's whole hangup, how that developed.
2: Yeah. but well, uh, You have to think about what age he was um, and how old could she have been yeah. in the original psycho? She, he's 30 ish. Um, and uh, so she couldn't have been that old a lady. Uh, and been his mother. And sure, you think of your mother as she is now rather than as she was when you were a child. So I thought that was a very canny thing that Joe Stefano put into the script. Um, And then to embrace Norma Bates as this beautiful 40-year-old woman as opposed to um, the old lady's voice that you hear in your head. Well, yeah, that was adult Norman's mother, not young Norman even yeah. though he killed her when she was young, but, uh, that's quibbling.
0: So. Right. Right. Um, it sent me down this path and I wrote this essay and I sort of republish it every, every mother's day about how <laughs> we, we don't know if you just take the original psycho on its own terms, using all of the dialogue and, and exposition that's in there, we know nothing about Mrs. Bates. Um, it's all from Norman, who is the most unreliable narrator on the planet, and uh, and I point to Psycho Four as evidence that maybe Norman was just making up a lot of stuff about Mrs. Bates. You know, when he jealously killed her, he 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 hated her boyfriend, but he framed it so that she killed her her boyfriend and yep. then herself. And I and I was like, maybe Norman's got an axe to grind here. Maybe she wasn't this terrible woman at all. And uh, it's it's just um, it's it got me wondering about the idea of. You know uh, you know fan fiction has become a big thing now uh, right and someone said it something to me that actually made it make sense to me for the first time is a, a, a lot of um you know sort of queer creators and people of color embrace fan fiction to insert themselves or people avatars for themselves in stories where they can't find themselves but you know if, uh, taking a step or two back it's it's everything that's not of the original cloth is fan fiction to some degree
1: right. you know.
0: Don't you think? I mean, Psycho Ford, to some degree, is fan fiction. And, and uh, the the, uh, what's the other example, Hannibal, the TV series, is to some degree fan fiction. And it's sort of opened my eyes where I used to turn my nose up at the phrase, but I do think yeah. that we're moving into this space. Maybe J.J. Abrams' Star Wars movies are all fan fiction.
2: Well, I think that's a good point, but but the differentiation is you're getting professionals doing it of the highest quality. You know, you're getting great screenwriters, great filmmakers um, to be able to step in and giving the production values. By, by its very definition, fan fiction is non-professionals doing it, mm-hmm. um, fans doing it. Uh, fans become professionals or sometimes are at the same time both things. Right. Um, but I think it's it's a great point because it is tinkering with something that is sacrosanct in its historical context, context but maybe not in the present day. Because yeah, it was very difficult for queer voices or, or ethnic voices of a kind to be able to be expressed in 1960, for example, when Psycho was made. And of course the star, Tony Perkins, having had a lot of problems with his sexuality and having had the actual cure for homosexuality in his youth. But to, when we were making psycho four, he was on the verge. He was, he had AIDS and we didn't know it because we would never have gotten uh, any insurance to be able to see it through at that time in 1990 when we were making it. But those voices were not yet out there. And, you know, he had to live a life in a closet. And he was married and had two kids. um, And, you know, this really complex, interesting guy, but he was living proof of the need to modernize what was going on? The character of Norman Bates was repressed in every way, um, and the whole mother son relationship in that. I mean, Mother's Day is obviously important to me with Psycho Four and Sleepwalkers on my resume. But uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got some doozies in there.
2: Uh, I'm waiting for Chapter Three in the trilogy. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I always, I was always fascinated, even as a teenager, watching those Psycho sequels because you know, you talk about legacy and, and psycho two to me is very sort of tenuous. Like it's aware of how reverent it should be to the original. And then psycho three is Anthony Perkins going, let's party. And (laughs) he's just sort of like owning it. He's like, this is my character. I'm going to, I'm going to embrace it. And, and, um, and then psycho four became its own thing, which, which I found uh, just fascinating at the time, just the idea of uh, sort of a la carte continuity that's a thing that's become... Again, there's another one where you're a trailblazer because now, what, Halloween 2018 ignores everything after the first Halloween?
2: Yeah. Every,
0: every Chainsaw sequel it starts with the first one again and um, and Psycho 4 was the first one to kind of just pick and choose its continuity in terms of uh, where it was going to sequelize.
2: Yeah, well, the choice basically was to ignore 2 and 3. Uh, 2 is a great movie and 3 is very very strong in a lot of ways, but... This story was most effective if we ignored them and picked up, you know, 30 years after the fact of of the original Psycho. Um, I don't know if there was a, a very profound conversation about that. Uh, Psycho 2 was very successful, Psycho 3 not at all. But the choice was made since we were doing a sequel prequel combined in one. To, to just go back to the original source. And especially with the screenwriter being the original Joe Stefano, who adapted Robert Block's book. Block and Stefano did not like each other and no. did, not, did not like the way each other approached their sequels. Robert Block wrote a book called Psycho 2 that's nothing like the book, the, the movie that was made. Right. And, uh, and, Stefano was not a fan of that. And Block was not a fan of Stefano. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, But anyway, that, that sort of push pull of like fandom wanting uh, a certain adherence to a canon and the way creators have to sort of be fearless about that is, is something that I see happening more and more. And I always, I always think back to to your work in that space where you're, you know, you, you, you put yourself out there in a way that I think, fans couldn't even get their heads around at the time. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm going to readapt the shining. That
2: just seems, you know, like. Let's call it naive. <laughs> yeah. I call it fearless. Come on. Okay. We'll call it fearless. But I thought in the case of the shining, which of course this comes up often, but, uh, I thought that, oh, great, we're going to be able to tell the story as King intended it. And he wrote the screenplay himself. Uh, and he it was well known that he was never a fan of the Kubrick film. And so I was just naive and thinking, uh, <clears throat> this we're going to be able to do The Shining like the book. The Kubrick film is a great Kubrick film. But a terrible adaptation of the King book. Um, this is an opportunity King had always wanted. With after the success of the Stand, ABC said, "What do you want to do next?" And he said, "The Shining." And because of the success we had combined with the Stand, as well as Sleepwalkers before that, Steve asked me to be a part of it, and and I couldn't have been more thrilled. One of my favorite books. When the original Kubrick film came out, I've said many times it was a huge disappointment to me because I love the book so much. And uh, it wasn't being brave on my part as much as it was on King's part. But the revelation came when I called Gary Sinise. And I said, what would you think about playing Jack Torrance? And he said to me, Mick, I'd be pretty hesitant about stepping into (laughs) Mr. Nicholson's shoes. And I go, oh, I didn't think of that. (laughs) All I thought about was what's in front of us and what we could make rather than, oh, yeah, there's that movie that everybody loves. Wow.
0: That's wild. Uh, It seems like a lot of your uh, contemporaries, you know, as a fan, it's been kind of you know, just dis- disappointing to watch the contemporaries roll to a stop, but people get older, the fires go out. They, they are, they said what they want to say. Um, but you're still out there doing it on all fronts, which is you're, you're, you're creating new stories. You're doing that thing you've been doing where you're. Oh, take one, take one from. On, yeah. Yeah. Terranville on to, to what you're doing in the podcast continues that mission. It feels like to me, uh, you're making you know, you're making a space for new creators to tell their stories, much like you do with Masters of Horror now with Nightmare Cinema, and it's just so cool to see you still out there doing your thing. What's what's uh, what do you want to get done before it's over?
2: Well, you know, I I just love it. Um, I'm always I feel like I'm brand new every time I go out, and that I I have a lot to prove to myself. You know, I'm there's fear is a great motivator. What if I fuck this up is always on my mind, and but. I love doing it, I love watching it, I love reading it, and I love making it in in all those fronts. And as far as the interviews go, the podcast, I'm inspired, like I said earlier, Young and old filmmakers alike inspire me. A guy like Toby Hooper was constantly on top of all of the hardware, that the tools of movie making and the evolution of those tools and always wanted to be, he was like a 25-year-old making movies. When he did his two Masters of Horror things, he was really eager to do new things and keep blazing trails. And I admired that so much about him. And I always feel like, you know, despite my age, I always feel like I'm in my 20s and just starting. Because, you know, I've I've not made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've not made Night of the Living Dead. I've not made Halloween or The Thing, you know. Um, but some of my opportunities have been as a writer or director for hire, and some of the things, a small percentage of them, have been of my own device. And that's what I want to keep doing. i I would love to adapt one of my books uh, into a, a film that I write and direct. You know, writing the bullet was the one time I took a film by credit because I don't believe in it, but I wrote it and I produced it and directed it from, from King's short story. But it was, it was a passion project that didn't cost much and was a terrible failure <laughs> box office-wise. And even critically, the, the opinions were quite divided at best. Uh, But it felt personal, and I kind of discovered a subgenre that stuck with me, not just in film and television, but in my fiction writing of emo horror, and something that really goes deeper than just viscera splattered on a screen, but something that's internal and, and heartfelt, whether it's a character or yourself, you are all of the characters that you write, and it's a matter of being empathetic or creative uh, and putting yourself in other characters' shoes. But what I would like most is to do something that's entirely my voice, like riding the bullet was really close to that. And it was a disaster. So, well, it wouldn't have been a diva- disaster if it cost more than it did. But uh, Fair still.
0: Enough. Yeah. Well, cool. Oh, on that tip, on, on, the, on the horror, that's more about empathy and about humanity and whatnot. Uh, I'm going to tell you just because I'm telling everybody, there's a movie coming out called Relic, and uh, it is uh, it is fantastic. It's by an Aus- a Japanese Australian filmmaker named Natalie Erica James, um, and I, I it'll be in the new issue of Fango. We've got a conversation between her and Mary Heron, which is uh, oh great, yeah, great interview. But I I, I I get nothing out of this. I just want everybody to see this film because I think it's going to be the one to beat this year in terms of
2: like uh, really
0: original special horror.
2: I can't wait! I can't wait! I love seeing new sil- uh, cinematic voices expressed.
0: And then when you see it, I want you to call me. Tell me what you thought of it.
2: You got it. Cool. Um, thanks for letting me
0: invade your space for an hour. Uh, this was great. You know, uh, you're one of my heroes, and uh, I'm I'm so grateful to be able to chat with you. And uh, I hope you're staying safe over there, you and Cynthia. And I hope everybody's doing well,
2: completely safe. And I hope you guys are. Taking care of yourselves and stay happy and healthy. And Phil, thank you so much for joining us here
1: on the slab.
0: Thanks for having
2: me. Take care.
1: Van Goria is honored to publish postmortem host Mick Garris's latest book, "These Evil Things We Do: The Mick Garris Collection." Whether a story about a plastic surgeon with a uniquely disturbing approach to his job, to tales of a deranged child genius obsessed with his teacher. These Evil Things We Do, the Mick Garris collection, explores mankind's capacity for limitless evil and how often that evil hides in plain sight. This collection brings together four of Mick's works for the first time in a single volume, along with a brand new novella called Free. These Evil Things We Do is now available for pre-order on Kindle and paperback through Amazon.
2: If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on
2: iTunes.